Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we enter part five of our series on the Holy Spirit. We've seen a couple of perspectives, but my guest today is bringing in a third view to our exploration of this important topic. Growing up with the belief that tongues were the only evidence of salvation, Pastor Victor Glucken eventually changed his view to accept more diversity in how the Spirit shows up in believers' lives, and we'll be getting into that a great deal in this episode. Victor Gluckin attended George Washington University, the University at Albany, and the Atlanta Bible College, studying political science, history, Judaic studies, and theology. He served as the assistant pastor at Living Faith Christian Church in Warwick, Rhode Island, for 13 years before becoming the lead pastor there in 2018, where he continues to serve. He's been an influential mentor and a lifelong friend of mine. And I think you'll appreciate his candor and tone, even if you see spiritual manifestations differently. Here now is episode 379, Gifts of the Spirit for the Common Good, with Victor Glucken. Welcome to Restitutio, Pastor Victor Glucken. So glad to have you here today. I'm glad to be here, man. All right, so let's begin with your own journey. A lot of times when I have people on, I ask them about their journey of faith. But for you, I'd like you to focus more on your journey of manifestations or gifts, your, your spiritual journey in the mm-hmm. sense of Holy Spirit. Could you get us started just telling us a little bit about your background as it regards to that subject? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a uh, church, uh, the Way International. Some of your listeners are familiar with that. There was a heavy emphasis on the manifestations of the spirit in that movement. Some things were very good. Some things were uh, troubling. But the way believed in once saved, always saved. And the way that someone received salvation was receiving the Holy Spirit. And so there was a heavy emphasis on receiving the Holy Spirit because there was a heavy emphasis on wanting people to get saved. And the way that you knew you had the Holy Spirit was by manifesting the Holy Spirit. And the predominant manifestation that was, I'll say, emphasized was speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, and then prophecy. I have memories of being maybe six years old in a children's fellowship. And part of our you know, Sunday school children's fellowship was that the kids would speak in tongues and interpret in the meeting. So uh, six years old, seven years old, that was something that, that we did, that we practiced, Pretty much for my childhood, speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy was a part of every meeting you ever went to. If it was at somebody's house and there were seven of you, we'd have songs, prayer, manifestations, as they were called, and then you know a teaching. If it was a large gathering, like same sort of thing. And so uh, tongues and prophecy were definitely a part of the culture growing up. And as a kid, were you into that or did you have questions about it or what was it? What was your perspective on it? Yeah. I, as a kid, I didn't know anything different. And so it was just part of my life. And uh, so I remember speaking in tongues as a kid in those children's fellowships and then in teen fellowships and even in part of, uh, you know, our home, our home groups and stuff like that. And uh, people would be called on because of that, you know, assumption that 
uh, everybody has the Holy Spirit. Everybody can practice these manifestations. The verse in 1 Corinthians 12, 11 uh, was interpreted that the Spirit distributed each one individually as he, the person, willed. So if, if this was something you wanted to do, you could do it. Intentionally or not, there was a, a pressure that was a part of this whole thing where because receiving the spirit and then manifesting the spirit was what showed that you were saved. Everybody wanted to have people speaking in tongues and manifesting the spirit to show that they were saved. There was a real heavy emphasis on teaching people to speak in tongues, leading people to speak in tongues, uh, encouraging people to speak in tongues. And, and so as a, probably I'm getting to be a teenager now, early teens, I was really just going along with it because I wanted people to think I was saved. I thought I was saved. And so I would speak in tongues and eventually I was able to be confident enough to admit that I had been faking it the whole time. And when I mean faking it, I would just, you know, make some sounds and then say something that sounded like the King James Bible when I was done. And I would be just part of, you know, what everybody else was doing. So like I said, because there was such an emphasis on the manifestation of the spirit and its connection to salvation, it was such a part of what we should be doing, you know, as kids and teenagers and stuff like that. So we would have times where people would be led into tongues. And basically what that is, is someone would teach them like how to speak in tongues by breathing exercises and maybe some practicing of different syllables and letters. You know, there's like uh, stories, whether they're apocryphal or not, I'm not sure of like going through the alphabet making some oh no uh, those that happened yeah yeah i don't i don't remember <laughs> that firsthand but i know that was you know part of it uh you know our friend russell tells a story of like being put into like a room somewhere in somebody's house and like nobody could leave until they all spoke in tongues and so there was like oh, wow. definitely there was a pressure involved whether it's peer pressure or whatever uh maybe motivated by wanting to see people saved but nevertheless there was a lot of pressure and so if you didn't do it something was wrong with you Hmm. that's why I was faking it because I just didn't want my parents or fellowship coordinators to like, give me a hard time. I remember one, one night in my fellowship, I spoke in tongues and, and my interpretation where I was speaking on God's behalf in that interpretation, I said, uh, you know, I am the Lord, your God. I love you. I am the way, the truth and the life. And I remember my father on the way home said, you know, Jesus is actually the way, the truth, and the life, not God. But here I was, you know, like giving this interpretation or this prophecy, and I was wow. biblically wrong because I didn't know better. I was just like trying to sound good. So you you had that phrase rolling around in your head, and you just put it in there with God as the speaker, and that's demonstrably false from the Bible. So that really must have shaken you up, right? I mean, or did you just brush it off. Yeah. It didn't shake me up. It just, I just remember the moment yeah. point being I I'm doing something that, you know, later I'll figure out and, and study is, is a miraculous empowerment, but I was, I was wrong in my practice of it because like I said, I was just doing it to get along, go along and, and the pressure and things like that. So, mm. um, I think eventually I kind of like pulled back a little bit as I started growing in my understanding of the Bible and getting more serious about my relationship with God, I, I had a lot of questions. I kind of realized that my 
admission that I was faking it and just going through the motions was probably not the best move for honesty and, and, you know, being genuine. And, uh, so I just, I started to start questioning things and searching a little bit on my own to, to discover specifically with the tongues and interpretation and prophecy, the other giftings listed in scripture, the miracles and stuff like that. I never had a problem with that. I never, you know, I, you know, I long to see those things in my life and in my, uh, you know, church and fellowships, but the, because of such an emphasis on the tongue, that was where I had a lot of the questions and the wrestling. And I remember um, now I'm in college. I was going to a church. Am I allowed to say what church? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Honesty is the best policy for interviews, I say. <laughs> you know. So now I'm in college, and I'm going to Living Hope Community Church in Albany. Mm-hmm. My father's the pastor. Yes. Well, you're the pastor now, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but in those days, yes, yes, I yes. was not in ministry at all. I was, yeah, I was you, trying to be an engineer at that yeah. time. That was a long time ago. Yeah. So uh, that's through a great transition in that in, a, in that church of doctrinal transition, getting away from one saved, always saved, believing in you know faithful into the end, really digging into Jesus's teachings letting go of dispensationalism. And um, so a part of that study is like the leaders of that church are, are studying and teaching. One of the things that they started to teach was that the interpretation of the tongue would not be the words from God, but like it says in Acts 2, speaking the wonderful works of God. And so they began to teach that the interpretation of the tongue wasn't so much a prophecy, like I am God, you know, here's my message, but, but an exaltation, you know, giving thanks well, magnifying God. And that was biblical. It seemed like that was a much more, you know, honest to the text reading. And so what started to happen was the people that were speaking in tongues and, and interpreting the tongues in the Sunday gatherings their interpretation started to change from more of a first person prophetic uh, declaration to praise and magnifying God. And that turned me upside down, man. Wow. I was like, wait a second, what is going on? Like we change our doctrine and now like the thing that's inspired by God is changing. Like it turned me upside down and I didn't know what to do. Uh, what, now, what, why did it turn you upside down? What was so shocking about that? Explain it a little bit. Yeah, I think it's because of what I was saying, that this was presumed to be a miraculous gifting and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and yet we've been doing it wrong this whole time. And now that we have like the new understanding from the Bible, the correct understanding, it just changes. And it just seemed I was challenged with it being genuine and fabricated. You know, I'm going through this process of figuring out what I, what I believe at the time and, and being a little bit of a rebel punk trying to question uh, things. But that just, it, like I said, it turned me upside down. It made me question the whole thing. One of the doctrines that we had learned from the Way International, I don't know if they still teach this or not, but this is something that we had learned, was that speaking in tongues was the only manifestation that could not be faked. Mm. All the other ones could be faked, mm -hmm. um, but not speaking in tongues. And yeah. um, it, and I, I presume that meant faked by demons or something like that. But uh, you already knew 
that tongues could be faked because you had faked them. (laughs) And now you're seeing that the interpretation changing was an indication that the interpretation could now also be fake and that the whole thing could be fake. I mean, you have a few different options. One option is the tongues are legitimate. They're real. They're a miracle of God. And uh, you're speaking in tongues, and then instead of interpreting, you're prophesying. Which you know, some people came to that conclusion that it was it was it was real, but we were doing it wrong or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then other people said, uh, "No, it's all bogus because you can't fake, you can't do a miracle wrong." And then the other possibility is that it is it is fake, but there is a real thing. There is a real expression, but this is just not it because our understanding is incorrect, but maybe other people are doing it, doing the real thing, and we're not doing the real thing because of our way of approaching it. So I think there were definitely a few options for us, and I, I, I certainly remember that. Uh, that was very much a key moment for me as well. I think it was actually a family camp when this teaching came out, at least when mm. I remember it. Mm. Yeah. And um, I remember thinking, well... You know, this really calls into question the genuineness of it because, you know, I, like you, believed it was a miracle. Now, I think there were some people that didn't believe speaking in tongues was a miracle. They just mm-hmm. thought it was something that anybody could do if you learned how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and for them, I don't think it was a problem at all. That's too low of a view, I think, for me, seeing it in Scripture, Day of Pentecost, people hear it in their own languages, like, you can't just make that up, you know? Right. So what was next for you in your journey on the whole, the whole subject? Yeah, I mean, I was like borderline cessationist for a minute after that because, you know, the the other option you can add to that list was either everything we were doing previously was wrong and now we got it right or what we're doing going forward is wrong because we changed it, you know? Uh, and, yeah. You know, I just got real skeptical and I got really uh, discouraged, I think, because like I said, it's, it, this is at the same time that I'm really getting serious about my relationship with God, trying to grow in holiness, trying to get away from the things of the world and, and repent of my sin. And I really wanted a relationship with God. And I really wanted to be filled with the spirit. And I really want, I was open to whatever God had uh, as part of that. And so that desire mixed with the discouragement of the changes you know, cause I remember thinking like, well, what's going to change next? Like, what's the next thing that we're going to learn that's going to affect it. And that's not true anymore. Wow. Yeah. And I think I did, I think your point about like the miraculous nature of tongues, I think that's made it an interesting part of the journey because I've, I believe on the day of Pentecost that it was a miracle that these Galileans are speaking in a bunch of other languages and that God empowered them to do that. So I have felt that way about the gift uh, since then. So I, I started just searching, questioning. I think I was closed-minded for a while, just you know, in recovery, <laughs> and uh, and then I just started to uh, start from scratch in a sense. Go to the scriptures, ask God to teach me, and not just about speaking in tongues and interpretation, but just the spirit in general. Because because there was such an emphasis on tongues, that was the emphasis of my understanding from the scriptures on the spirit. And so one of the things that was really helpful was to start with Jesus, to go back to like the Last Supper discourse where he talks about the spirit. Rather than just jump into Paul, rather than just jump into the 
the book of Acts, understanding what Jesus taught about the spirit and having an expectation and a, and a longing for those things, you know, that the spirit would lead us into the truth, that it would empower us to be witnesses and convict the world of sin, bring things to our remembrance that he had taught. And those things made a lot of sense. Those were the things I was beginning to experience for what it's worth as I started walking by the spirit. Part of that process included understanding about baptism in the name of Jesus and that part, you know, the part that baptism played in conversion and the spirit, just studying those things. And so, like I said, it became like a blank, blank page, learning again, maybe for the first time what the Bible actually said, starting with Jesus and then moving into Acts and to the epistles. Uh, so where I am now, I mean, that's like jumping like 15, 20 years in that process is that I believe biblically and historically, and I thought John Truitt did a good job with some historical references about the gifts of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is still active, present in the world, in the church, in the lives of the individual believers to empower God's people to live for him. And that also includes miraculous giftings of the spirit, you know, listed in Corinthians, lists shown in the book of Acts. You know, so biblically and historically, those things are still available and present, but also experientially experiencing those things, which doesn't guarantee that they're true, but it, my experience has mirrored the biblical expectation and, and the biblical story of what Jesus said. That's where I've arrived now. Maybe you could mention the, the difference between manifestations and gifts of the Spirit, because a lot of us who came up under a way doctrine came to understand that the Holy Spirit is like a battery pack that is installed in believers that then, like a car battery, can be operated. So you pull the little lever and the lights the lights come on, or you push the button and the radio comes on. It's all the same battery. It, ha- it can do these different things. You just need an instruction manual or somebody else to teach you, oh, hey, this is how you get the windshield wipers working, and so on. So these would parallel to speaking in tongues, prophecy, interpretation, miracles, healing, faith, and so on discerning of spirits, that these are all different operations of the Spirit, and you haven't been using that kind of language here. You've been talking about gifts of the Spirit. So maybe you can explain a little bit here why you see it that way instead of the other. Yeah, so I think that the New Testament teaches that God gives the Holy Spirit to someone that believes the gospel and confesses Jesus as Lord. There are different times, and and, uh, there isn't one formula, even in the book of Acts, of when that happens. Sometimes it's spontaneously. Sometimes it's after they're baptized. Sometimes it's later in their progression as disciples. But a disciple of Jesus needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And then Scripture says that the Holy Spirit will work in the believer's life in various ways. So there's the personal uh, sanctification and growing in holiness and uh, conviction part that the Holy Spirit provides personally that has nothing to do with you, 
Sean. It's all, it's just me and God working that out. And then there's the other element of the corporate gathering of the church and times when the spirit uh, will work in that setting in, in a variety of ways, whether it's through prophecy, whether through discerning of spirits, a word of knowledge, word of wisdom. And that can happen in a large gathering of 200 or, or, or two or more, right? And then there's the third part of uh, the, the great work of the church, which is to spread the gospel of the kingdom in all the, all the earth. And so the spirit will empower and work in that setting as well. So there are different settings that the spirit is required and will, will work. And the reason I'll say gifting is because I believe that when the spirit works, it is at God's initiative. So I don't believe 1 Corinthians 12, 11 from the NASB says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills, meaning the person who has the spirit. I believe that he is talking about God. And the reason why I believe that is because of the testimony of the New Testament, but specifically in Hebrews chapter two, verse four, where the writer of Hebrews is talking about how God has worked up to this point. Verse four says, God also testifying with them, both signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. God is the one that is working to give gifts, to uh, show himself in power uh, through the spirit in the church. It's not, it's not something that I like the car, turn the key and now I'm operating the car and I can now turn this way or that way. And Oh, as I get more advanced in my driving, I can do a, I can parallel park and, and, you know, (laughs) and that's maybe uh, discerning of spirits. Once you get to the advanced (laughs) class there. That's right. That's right. So uh, I think these are gifts. God is the giver of the gifts. And I believe that all Christians can uh, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit will work in a variety of ways in the Christian's life. I think it's possible for someone who has the Holy Spirit to see all of the different evidences of the Spirit. But I also know that it's possible and likely that you don't see certain ones. And I think, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that with the rhetorical question of, do all speak with tongues, right? Um, do all uh, do miracles or all apostles? And we know that Paul's making the case that, no, we know not everybody is going to do and see these things. I don't believe I have ever spoken in tongues, but there's no way you can convince me that I don't have the Holy Spirit, nor have I seen the Holy Spirit at work in my life. And so uh, I think the emphasis is on the gift of the Holy Spirit, primarily and secondarily, the, the specific ways that that gift will operate, manifest itself, show itself, etc. I appreciate that explanation. In uh, the early part of 1 Corinthians 12, and, and maybe we could get into 1 Corinthians 12 a little bit more just to substantiate that, you have really three or four major sections of the chapter, right? We have this beginning part right here where it talks about in verse, say, uh, verse 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. I'm reading from the NASB as well, but the 2020 edition. So hey you now, have to... hey now. <laughs> promo for Restitutio uh, <laughs> previous yeah. podcast. Yep, yep. What I see here is that, uh, yeah, the Spirit is itself a gift, but 
the, the gift has within it different gifts, okay? Yeah. And it's the same spirit, but it shows up in these different ways, like you were saying. And then this whole we get this whole uh, list or section starting in verse 7, for to one, for to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to the one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, the one Spirit, and uh, working right through. So the point of that section climaxes in the verse you read, verse 11. Mm -hmm. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one according just as He wills. So there are all these different evidences, gifts, manifestations, whatever you want to call them, operations even, uh, of the Spirit, but they're given to different people according to God's will. Is that a Correct. fair summary of what you're saying? No doubt. And I think the testimony of the New Testament as well. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's let's come back to that in a second. Yeah. Uh, how do you see this play into the next section with the body? I think the emphasis with whatever word you use, gifts, manifestation, operation, the emphasis should be on God— in what he is choosing to do and working as opposed to, you know, how can I take this baby out for a ride? I think first Corinthians 12 is trying to get everybody on the same page about the spirit. And I think, I think the whole chapter, which talks about the spiritual gifts and the spiritual matters, Paul's making the same point over and over again, that it's the same spirit working in a variety of different ways. He says that in the first section, uh, the middle section, when he gets into that body analogy, is saying the same thing, that it's one body with different parts. And to not separate the body and thus separating the gifts to saying this is better, this is worse, but they're all needed. They're all a part of the one. He's reiterating this over and over because uh, just like human nature, I think the Corinthians had used the variety of ways that the spirit works to cause division and to um, create sort of a hierarchy of who was the better Christian, who was the, the lesser Christian. And Paul really is striving for them to be united, to get their focus on God and to get their focus on what is best for the whole, right? One of my favorite phrases in this section is about the common good. Verse seven, each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And he, he's just trying to get them to realize that they're all a part of the same team. They're all a part of the same body. And they're actually not all supposed to be the same thing. He deals with that, right? When you get to the end, when he makes that point about not everybody is an apostle, not everybody speaks with tongues, not everybody prophesies. He, his point in that is to say that you're actually not supposed to be the same. You're supposed to be different. And that's what makes things uh, good and beautiful when that diversity is there, but you're united uh, in it. Okay, so what I hear you saying is that not everybody's supposed to speak in tongues. Would you agree with that? And if and if so, how do you deal with 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues? Or the verse where Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all. Is that your view, that not everyone is supposed to speak in tongues? I think not everybody does speak in tongues. I think everyone could speak in tongues. So you you can speak in tongues? Well, I have the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works and empowers is in the ability to speak in tongues and the ability to interpret tongues and the ability to have discerning of spirits. So absolutely, 
I don't see that that has like faded or gone away, right? Obviously there's like a, an emphasis on that in this letter. And I think one of the reasons why is because I think Tongs in particular was being uh, disproportionately emphasized in Corinth. Now, First uh, Corinthians, let's not forget, is a letter of correction. It's not a letter primarily of instruction. So he's not writing this letter to people that just received the Spirit, don't know anything about the Spirit, to say, oh, hey, I just want you to know this, this, and this. He is writing to a very dysfunctional church that is doing everything it possibly can to divide and to one-up each other. And, and there are all sorts of problems, sexual immorality, we know. They're like suing each other. You know, it's just it's just it's a like mess. everything you could think of. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. Right. And good old Chloe ratted him out. You know, when he gets to the stuff on the spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and then in chapter 14, he's writing to correct where they were wrong. And so one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to affirm that tongues is legitimate, that tongues is of God. But he's also going to make sure that he is not overemphasizing one of the gifts over the other, which it appears the Corinthians were doing. It seems historically in the ancient world, part of like temple worship for the pagans was uh, this expectation and desire to get into like an ecstatic uh, fit. And so you have in Corinth right down the street, you know, it wasn't another church, it was some temple and the super spiritual in that temple would come out of it in an ecstatic fit in even things that, you know, some historians would like compare with like speaking in tongues. And, that was a sign for the pagans that you're the most spiritual. And so now you come to the Christian church and uh, someone is speaking in tongues. I think that old mindset temptation would have been like, that's the best Christian right there. You're the best Christian if you could speak in tongues because we are familiar with this upfront, obvious uh, manifestation from our old life as being the most important, right? To get even now, right? Like, there have been times when I have, God has given me a word of wisdom for somebody and it's not always sexy. What do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> it, sometimes it's just, you know, meeting with somebody and God giving clarity to a situation and, and speaking truth to that person. Uh, that's exactly what they need to hear to help them in a situation. And then we move on. But for someone in, in a meeting to stand up and speak on God's behalf, with a prophecy or speak in another language miraculously or translate that language miraculously, that was a big deal. That got of a lot of attention. And so I think Paul is trying to affirm the gifts of the spirit, affirm tongues, but also put it in its appropriate place. If you notice, every time he lists the gifts of the spirit, tongues is always last. And it's almost like he's, he's turning the body upside down when he talks about like giving honor to the less presentable, right? The, the dirty foot of the body, which, you know, is you never see, but so important. He's almost turning it upside down. He's turning it upside down to say, no, this is, this is actually what should be honored. Not just the people out front, not just the people that are speaking in the meeting, not just the people that are the, the ones that are showing obvious workings of the spirit, but any and every way the spirit is working is just as important and I think he's correcting the Corinthian view that tongues in particular was the most important. And likely what's happening as a result of that is people that aren't speaking in tongues are looked at as second class, not as spiritual. 
which is exactly what happens in some church contexts today. Like I said, growing up with that pressure to speak in tongues and feeling, I mean, I, I, I've had many conversations with people really had some, you know, emotional wounds because when it came time for them to speak in tongues and they didn't, they felt like something was wrong with them. They felt like God didn't love them. They felt everyone else in the room is, is, is speaking in tongues and they're not because they genuinely wanted to, they genuinely wanted to receive the spirit. They did not want to fake it. And so they left that meeting or the end of that class feeling like something was wrong with them. And that was probably happening in Corinth too. And Paul's like, Hey, every way that the spirit is working is what the spirit's supposed to do. And, and don't take this as just the next way for this messed up Corinthian church to have a hierarchy of who's more important than the other. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence that the, the meat of that chapter 12 and chapter 14 sandwich is first Corinthians 13. Big deal. You speak in tongues, big deal. If you don't love people, it doesn't matter. Stop. You know, it's that very prophetic, like, get your songs out of here. You right. know, Isaiah instead. 1. I yeah. can't stand yeah. your worship so, service. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think it's important when we look at 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 to remember the context of the letter, which is, uh, I look at verse 1 Corinthians 1.10 as like the theme of the letter. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so I, I just think that let's have an expectation for God's spirit to work in our lives in all the ways that are possible. And also let's not think of someone as a less important Christian if they're not fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. I think that that misses the point of, of Christian love. I think that's what Paul's dealing with. So you would say that our differences in how we experience and express the Holy Spirit, those differences are actually to be celebrated. Hmm. Preach. W- would you yeah. agree with that? <laughs> yeah. So, so you know what's interesting? Uh, over the course of my life and, and in, even in ministry, I've had a number of well-meaning people show a lot of concern that I don't speak in tongues personally. I remember uh, multiple times being told that uh, there were some great concerns about my generation of Christians because we did not speak in tongues with the same you know, numbers that the generation before us did. And again, a lot of that was because of just the, the process and the, the changes and our own searching of the scriptures and stuff like that. But the concern was that this next generation was going to be powerless. Mm. I remember someone saying that to me once. They were concerned that the next generation's church was going to be powerless. And I remember thinking like, are you serious? Are you serious? Like, look at the many ways that God is already working right now, you know, and, and answering prayers and people repenting of sin and growing in holiness and like a real evidence of God's spirit at work, teaching, leading into truth, etc. And because there isn't as predominant of a practice of speaking in tongues, which was, again, let's not forget, it was everyone <laughs> to now being uh, a lot less than everyone. Mm-hmm. There was a concern that the power of God wasn't going to be in the church. And, and my, I remember my response was thinking, hey, let's rejoice that there's a tongue. We're not all supposed to be the tongue. Like, let's rejoice that there are people that are speaking in tongues 
And so that we are a part of a church or you are a part of a church where there is a tongue. You know, there are some churches that don't have a tongue, I guess, <laughs> right? or, or, or who don't have a, you know, an elbow or whatever. And, and we're thankful that there are people in our churches that speak in tongues and we should rejoice in that rather than be concerned about the person that's not. I think the more important question to ask is not how have you manifested the spirit, but have you received the Holy Spirit? Like, let's ask that more than, hey, do you speak in tongues? Let's ask, have you received the spirit? And then like some of the questions and the point Paul makes, especially in chapter 14, like we may not even have to deal with uh, to the same extent. So you're staking out a different position in that on the one side, you're saying you believe that speaking in tongues is available today for Christians. So you're going against the the idea that this was just for the first century or just for the second for just for the early period. And then on the other side, you're going against the view that says everyone's supposed to. So I, I want to drill down on that just a little bit. So I asked you very directly, put you in the hot seat. Can you speak in tongues? And you said yes. If you had asked me that question, I would have said no. Hmm. I would say nobody can speak in tongues. <laughs> Even the people yeah. that are speaking in tongues can't speak in tongues uh -huh. because it's a miracle. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you said to me, Sean, can you raise somebody from the dead? I would say no. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. Yeah. I can, I can get out there and I can dig the person up and I can yell at them and <laughs> put oil on them or whatever <laughs> all day long, and that person is still going to be dead. The only one who can raise the dead, the only one who can uh, cause someone to speak a language they've never studied is God. Yeah. You know, so, but I realize that's splitting hairs. Sure. You know what I mean? Because what I'm saying is nobody, no human can do a miracle. It has to be God. But God does it through a human, and there is obviously human participation where if you're going to speak in tongues, you have to agree to it. God's not going to, you know, possess you and take over and, like, awkwardly move your lips around like some sort of demon possession, right? Mm -hmm. Would you say, then, that everyone should seek after speaking in tongues? Or see, We haven't really talked about this, but there's a heavy emphasis of 1 Corinthians 14 on prophecy, a lot of people like to quote 1 Corinthians 14.5, where Paul says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but the second half of that, but rather that you would prophesy. Yeah. <laughs> Greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues. And what I've seen is that some Christians, what they'll do is they'll isolate tongues and they'll say, no, everyone can speak in tongues, even if you can't do these other things. And other people saying, no, everyone can prophesy. Prophecy is universal, but these other ones mentioned are not universal. So how, how do you, in practice, work this all out? You've got a young Christian who comes to you, young in their faith, not necessarily young in age, but young in their faith, and they're like, oh, you know, I've, I've read about this, I've seen this. You know, can I speak in tongues too? Can I prophesy? How does, how does it work? What would you say to somebody in that kind of category? Yeah, I think the first thing to say in general is that the, the craving of our soul when it comes to the Holy Spirit specifically as it relates to uh, manifestations and giftings of the Holy Spirit should be what is going to be for the common good and the glory of God. Okay. So even Paul is like, I wish that you would do this and, but do this. Even his emphasis in that is what's best for the whole group. 
uh, it seems that he would actually, there'd be times when he would not have speaking in tongues a part of something because of the presence of outsiders or uh, because of confusion or, or, or because it's um, disorderly, right? His point is the common good. What's best for the common good? So the question that we should ask, and I'll get to the new believer uh, question in a second, is what's the need of the moment, right? What's for the common good? Uh, there are times, uh, even even in non-miraculous things, where you know, you're in a prayer meeting or a fellowship, and someone has prayed for Bobby who's sick, and then the next person prays for Bobby that's sick, and then the third person, you know what? Forgive me, Lord, but we might not need to pray the third time for Bobby who's sick. I think at that point, people have just stopped listening to the other people praying, perhaps. You know, <laughs> so even that, like even in something that's not necessarily miraculous, I can preach for two hours. But that's probably not for the common good in most contexts. Well, not if none of people's eyes glaze over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> people start twitching. Then you need to like raise them up <laughs> like uh, Eutychus, right? <laughs> Eutychus fell out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Point being, what is the common good is the question to ask when it comes to the spirit, particularly as it relates to um, the, the church gathered together. As for the new person, one of the things that I will tell people as they prepare for their baptism, I will say to them, I'll say, one of the things that I want you to consider in the moments and the, in the days before we do this, if it's scheduled on Friday and I'm meeting with them on a Monday, I'll say, you know, spend some time in prayer this week. Uh, I want you to really think about your need for forgiveness and, and the cross. And, and I will say that one of the things I want you to pray about is to have an expectation to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are many instances in scripture and even personally that you and I can both test to where the Holy Spirit will show up, you know, in those moments at someone's conversion, at someone's baptism in a miraculous way. And I'll mention that there are times in New Testament where people would speak in tongues, right? We know of people that have been healed as a result of their baptism or conversion or whatever. And so what I what I think is important for us when it comes to like a new person uh, after they've been filled with the spirit is to encourage them uh, to have a heart for God to work in their lives, to have a heart to join God in what he's doing, you know, to use like a Henry Blackaby phrase, not about what is in it for you, but what is in it uh, for your relationship with God. I love what Greg Dibel said in his podcast where he said, you know, we should look less for an experience and more for the relationship. And so I'm not like minimizing the, the question of the new person, but I think that should be the emphasis. I think people should have an expectation that they can speak in tongues. They could speak in tongues, that they should know about it. I think there's something to teaching about it in the church, right? As you go through the book of Acts, explaining what's happening there. As you're going through 1 Corinthians, you know, that you're explaining what's happening there and giving a biblical understanding of it. But it's going to be up to God. It's going to be up to God. Uh, you can uh, teach about speaking in tongues for a whole year, and that's not going to guarantee that more people are going to be speaking in tongues or not. That's God's job. Mm -hmm. All right, last question. Do you make room for expressions of the Holy Spirit, manifestations of the Holy Spirit in your Sunday services? And if so, how does that, how does that work? Yes, in our church services— we're, we're prayerful that God will work and speak in, I'll say, unplanned ways. And I don't mean weird or freaky ways, but, uh, you know, we, we have our sermon 
uh, things like that, that we're hopeful, we're, we're prayerful that during the worship, God will, you know, meet his people in their praise and things like that. And in our church, we typically have an open time of prayer where we um, will either call on people to pray or have an open time uh, for prayer, depending on, on the Sunday. And also we will offer time in those in that moment, that if someone is inspired by the spirit in a variety of ways, sometimes the request is if someone's inspired with a message or a word or to speak in tongues and interpret, we'll ask them to raise their hand as opposed to calling on them, right? I don't want to assume that I'm looking at you and think you're ready to do it. So we'll ask people to raise their hand and then whoever's leading the meeting you know, we'll prayerfully discern who to ask and how many to ask. Uh, we have uh, sometimes where someone will be inspired with a scripture and and a prayer, right? So I look at that sort of like as as a word of wisdom, right? This isn't like a pre-planned thing, but as as the service is going, they'll share this message, and I believe God works in that way. Uh, there will be times when we'll have people, uh, someone that will speak in tongues and interpret. Someone will give a word of prophecy. Uh, we don't do it all the time every week. But we want to be open to allow room for those things to happen. There have been times when we've been in our, our monthly prayer night where I have sensed that there should be a word of prophecy or something like that. I know a story uh, a few months ago where um, I was up on up on the stage and I and I just I felt like God was saying that that someone here had a had a word for the for the church. And I actually went over to the person and I said, are you inspired to prophesy right now? You know, quietly, privately. And they were. And so they, they gave forth a word of prophecy, a message uh, to the church. And then when I spoke to them afterwards, what they said was they were driving to the service that night and believe God had put on their heart that they were going to give a word of prophecy. But they also said, well, we, we usually don't do that on these monthly prayer meetings. So it's probably not going to happen. And, and so, you know, we saw that, you know, God was working in that situation because we have an expectation and we allow uh, the room for. It. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing about that. I, I know that there are many ways to handle and organize a Sunday service. You have um, one extreme, the Quakers, especially the old school Quakers, where nothing's planned and everything is to be inspired by the Spirit, even the sermon even if somebody started singing a song. And then you have, on the other side, very regimented Sunday services, like your big box, evangelical, mega churches. Everything is, is going to be meticulously planned out, just like a, a business meeting. And you know, the, even the person who prays is, is all planned out ahead of time. Some more liturgical churches are going to not only have that, but also have the prayers themselves written out. Yeah. Your experience is much more on the the side that's risky, <laughs> where you you allow people in, but you have this uh, hand raise your hand business to sort of maintain some uh, control of the room, so that things aren't done without being in a, in a chaotic or confusing way, where uh, you know everyone's talking over each other. You don't yeah. you don't allow for that. So that's uh, that's really helpful. Uh, any concluding thoughts for today? Or anything you'd like to say to, to listeners on the subject uh, by way of closing? The most important part of this conversation is for someone to receive the Holy Spirit. 
Paul asked disciples that in Acts 19. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? These are people that are disciples already. What's that all about? You know, and now we know that, you know, they were probably behind the times with the updated information about the Messiah and, and baptism in Jesus' name. They were probably John's disciples. But I think that's important. Let's not assume that someone that comes to our meetings has the Holy Spirit like that. If you want to see God work in your life, you need to receive the Holy Spirit. I love that Jesus said in Luke 11 uh, to ask your father for the Holy Spirit. So we've got to ask for the Spirit. And, and the other thing is, I don't think we should uh, underestimate that before we, you know, are concerned about the healing and the, and the miraculous, the big stuff, let, let's long to see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I mean, that word fruit is in a way, another way to say a manifestation of it, right? You know, it's an apple tree because you see the fruit of an apple. And so like, you know, there are a lot of people that, you know, don't want to know anything about the gifts, but they don't even have the fruit. Right. And then you have some people that are really excited and, and emphasizing the gifts, but you can't bypass the fruit. You can prophesy and cast out demons in his name and still hear depart for me. I never knew you. But you can't have you can't not have love. You can't not have patience. You know, what I mean, those things are required for salvation. Whether or not you ever speak in tongues, there's some gray area there for sure. But definitely the fruit of the spirit needs to be emphasized. And uh, the last thing I'll say is when I when my world got turned upside down, as I was telling you before, as it comes to the this, the manifestations and the gifts of the spirit, the prayer I prayed was, God, teach me. God, help me. God, give me clarity. God, I want you. I want a relationship with you. And so, you know, those of your listeners that are you know curious about these things, that want to understand these things, that's where that's where it starts. God, help me. God, teach me. God, show me. And then just just watch where how God might work, whether it's a podcast or a book or, or a conversation that you have that God's going to use to speak to you on this to just, you know, have that relationship with him where he can show himself good to you through his spirit. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. It was a delight to talk to you and uh, we'll have to have you on on something else in the future. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure to be with you. Well, that's it for this interview. What did you think? would love to hear your thoughts, your questions, your comments on restitutio.org. Just locate episode 379, Gifts of the Spirit for the Common Good with Victor Gluckin, and leave your comment on the site. Also, if you would like to follow up with Gluckin, you can get to his church website, Living Faith Christian Church, by going to Living Faith RI, stands for Rhode Island, livingfaithri.org, and you can check out his sermons and get in touch with him there. Also, here on Restitutio, we have had a number of other podcast episodes featuring Pastor Gluckin, so check out those if you're interested. On our last episode, 378, Speaking in Tongues Discussion Part 2 with Dival and Truett, Patricia Samuel wrote in saying, Thank you for this presentation. I found it very thought-provoking. I would like to say that until we see the inconsistent rendering of the words glossa and dialectos in most Bible versions corrected, we will not get a clear picture of the biblical teaching on the subject. I suggest that the producers of lexicons and translators of most Bible versions have been influenced by charismatic hijacking of language. 
In addition, it seems that some scholars are so taken with their personal definition of glossa as being ecstatic that they have failed to include the seven usages of the term glossa in the book of Revelation, as obviously referring to natural languages and therefore miss a relevant factor in their analysis of the subject of tongue speaking, which is vital in understanding the situation in Acts and 1 Corinthians. Well, Patricia, I think both John Truitt and Greg Dival, as well as Victor Gluckin, would agree that tongues, the English word for glossa or glossolalia, if you want to use the technical term, refers to spoken languages, that this is not referring to ecstatic gibberish or sounds just made up, but actual languages. Now, there might be a dispute on whether or not that can be proven, but that is what we're talking about here. So I don't think we are confused on on the, the term here. You're right that glossa could just be translated as language, and, I, and I, I personally don't see any problem with that in English translations if somebody wants to do that. I understand why they don't, but I don't know if I'd go so far as to say this is a hijacking by charismatics. This, this is certainly becoming less and less the case, but over the years, charismatics have not participated very much in the higher institutions of learning and have not really done a lot of influencing in translations. I mean, sure, you can look at a couple of exceptions or highly popular charismatic versions these days, but not over the years. They haven't really played a significant role in shaping Bible translations. So I, I don't think that is a sustained critique. We are seeing more and more charismatic theologians these days, uh, but that's a newer development. Kenneth A. Laprade uh, writes in saying, I would simply like to start by commending John, Greg, and Sean for engaging in a very kind-hearted civil dialogue about a controversial subject. I also would like to state an observation about the overall context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God, though being one giver, wisely distributes gifts, ministries, or ways of serving, spiritual evidences with tremendous diversity throughout the whole chapter. That is why the truth that not all are apostles, not all speak with languages, etc., verses 28 through 30, is beautifully compatible with the flow of the whole chapter, where not all are a giant eyeball, nor are all an ear, etc., though each member is equally loved and important. When I personally, formerly, held to divisively emphatic tongues for all theology, I had simply failed to see this simple overall contextual truth. The manifestation, singular, of the Spirit being given to all in verse 7, despite my previous understanding, does not contradict this wide context of diversity by implying that the list of nine evidences, verses 8 through 11, is a package given to all. God's truth here is so non-divisive when the wider contextual factors are taken into account. Well, well, Kenneth, I'm curious to hear what you think of what Gluckin just laid out here for us in this episode. We'd love to see your thoughts on that, but I caution you on claiming that this or that view is or is not divisive. In my experience, every doctrine is divisive. Even the doctrine that doctrine doesn't matter is a doctrine that's divisive, and it will divide groups of Christians from each other. I don't think divisiveness is avoidable when it comes to doctrine. 
my my tack on it has been to learn from the churches of Christ who have recognized that all doctrines are not equally important. And their founders had set forth the idea that there is a core of essentials, and those really do matter for salvation and for fellowship. And then there's a great number of non-essential beliefs, beliefs on which we can differ from each other, and these beliefs are still important, still relevant for our lives and how we think and so on, but they're not worth dividing over. And that's really more my approach to this whole thing. I I think no matter what position you take on speaking in tongues, whether you think it's not available today, whether you think everyone should speak in tongues, or whether you think that only certain people should speak in tongues, those, those whom God has gifted, whatever your position is on that, it's going to be divisive because people hold different views and people are very passionate about this particular subject. So uh, that's part of the inspiration for why I'm doing this series. I, I, I am zealous to get all of the different points of view out there just so that everyone can hear what they are. Uh, so often we don't even have conversation across the aisle on these different topics, and you might not even know what the options are. Because I've got a whole other point of view coming up in a couple of episodes that is different than any of these three. And we'll see how that goes. And my goal, other than just showing the perspectives, is to challenge everyone, myself included, to listen to the other side, to consider it, and to recognize that the people that believe differently on this subject aren't demon-possessed. They're not weirdos and freaks because they do or they don't speak in tongues because they believe in it or they don't believe in it. But these are honest-hearted believers. These are honest-hearted Christ followers who are genuinely disagreeing on this subject. And I'm not arguing for a skeptical position that says, well, nobody can know. No, I think you can know. But I I think you, you really are limited if you don't know all the options. So that's what I'm trying to bring out here in this series. So thanks thanks uh, to all of you who have listened in. That's all the time I have for reading out comments today, but please do comment in if you want to challenge something I've said or one of the contributors to this show. And you can do that on our website, restitudio.org, where you can also support this ministry. And I so appreciate those who do. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.